Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that is me, and I'm kind of tan and kind of rested, and in any case, I'm ready for the second half of 2021. I was just in Minnesota, where I'm from, for the first time since February of 2020, so thank you, science, for that. Got to see my family, got to record a podcast from my old bedroom. Um, that was fun. Startled a bit to see that just mask wearing is done outside of New York City, apparently. Maybe maybe it's still a thing on the West Coast as well. Um, but people are just 100% done wearing masks, at least in Minnesota, even though they're maybe at 60-something percent vaccinated, which is pretty good. But you're, you know, you're in a, you'll be in an enclosed area or, or a large group and go, I know that not all of you are vaccinated, but none of you are wearing masks and that's weird. But you know what? You get used to it. And I guess that's what we're going to do is get used to it, I think. Okay, that's enough of Peter's COVID update. On today's show, talk to David Gura from NPR, who's out in Sun Valley covering the annual Mogul Fest. You know about the Mogul Fest. We've talked about it in the past. You've seen it on Succession. You've seen Jeff Bezos walking around, guns out with that big blazer. Not that big blazer, with the big vest on. You know the vest. Um, we talked to him about who's there, who's not, maybe what they're talking about, what you do as a reporter when you can't actually be in the room where it happens, and also who David Gura photographed not wearing any pants. Then we got a chat with Kevin Delaney, who was a really good combination of brainy and also a good human. He was formerly a reporter and editor at Wall Street Journal, and then he co-founded Quartz, and now he started a new publication that's called Charter. And this one is both interesting because of what Charter covers. It's about how we're going to go back to work and what happens once we get back to work and what work is going to be like. But we also want to talk to Kevin about how he is starting this business. He's creating a new media business by starting with a newsletter, not, not starting a newsletter by bailing on an existing business, but building a new business around a newsletter um, with minimal capital. It looks like he's found some initial traction. So that should get your mental gears moving. Okay, enough of me. Now me and David Gura. I'm in Brooklyn. I'm talking to NPR's David Gura, who is in Sun Valley, Idaho, for the Sun Valley. What was, what's the formal name of the conference, David? I think it's the Allen & Co. Sun Valley Conference. There might have been a media and tech modifier that they've dropped, but anyway, we'll, let's just call it Sun Valley. It's Sun Valley. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know what it is. If you've seen Succession and you listen to this podcast, you probably know what it is. It's where all the tech and media moguls go to be photographed wearing fleece vests and presumably to go make deals that will change all of our lives. David, why are you at Sun Valley? You know, I've been to this conference before. I've covered it before when I was at Bloomberg. And doing that, I was kind of complicit in the way it all works. I would come here. We would do interviews on the sidelines. Um, so I wasn't a participant per se. Now I'm at NPR. I wanted to come back um, because this seems like a signal moment, like a return to in-person deal-making. Uh, we've had the pandemic when all of that's been done online. It struck me that after a year off, they canceled this conference last year it was maybe a big deal to have all these folks back again. Yes, wearing the fleece vests, but uh, mingling and talking. 
you published a, a, a quite poignant Twitter thread yesterday of mostly you photographing people from afar or Jason Kyler, uh, who's still at Warner Media, promising to come talk still to there. you guys, but he never did. Today, I think you had photographs of, of Barry Diller walking around bare feet. Barry Diller, he was, that was from yesterday. He showed up in a golf cart with with Anderson Cooper. He was wearing shorts and barefooted as well. Um, it's funny. I feel like every year this conference happens, our ability to see what's going on and talk to the people who are participating just gets more and more restricted. And because it's outside this year, they didn't want to do a lot of the programming inside because of COVID. They've moved it to this amphitheater, to the pavilion on site, and that's further restricted where reporters can be. So we've had some glimpses of people. We've tried to beckon people over to talk with us. Mm -hmm. um, that's gotten harder. And I, <laughs> I I worry about the precedent that's been set here. I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of like... Um, hygiene theater, you know, because of COVID, we're going to keep folks far away. And I wonder if that's going to be a lasting thing at this conference. Well, that's that's been heading that way for a very long time. It used to be back in the day. I've never gone, but you'd hear war stories. Uh, Ed Lee, my former editor at, at, at RICO, just published a, a great sort of reminiscence of the greatest uh, reporter stories from covering this stuff. It used to be that someone like a uh, um, Rupert Murdoch might actually talk to you and he might actually drunkenly lose his wedding ring that uh, he used to marry, marry Wendy Dang and you would help him go look for it. And at least you'd have a good story out of it and maybe there you'd actually glean some knowledge. So presumably no one is coming here to tell you what deal they're making. Does anyone come talk to you guys now? Um, David Zasloff came up to the mics yesterday when he arrived and there used to be a calculation I think some of these executives would make, which is when we arrive, we will come up to the mics, we'll field maybe a question from each reporter stand, who's standing there in a kind of humiliating way, yelling questions at people as, as they drive up, knowing that if they were to do that, um, we wouldn't hound those executives for the duration of the conference. Mm -hmm. Yesterday was really only David Zasloff who did that. And he who talked loves, about- Who loves to talk. Loves to talk. So talked about Jason. Uh, Kyler said that he's going to you know, spend some time with him while he's here, uh, kind of ominously, uh, I thought, um, you know, raised the specter of there being more consolidation and deal making yeah. after he gets this particular deal through. And he said an eight month horizon by which he thinks that's going to happen. Although he said that that, that could move. Um, no, people aren't talking. And so it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a really strange thing to cover as a reporter. You can set up little conversations on the sidelines, but um, yeah, gone are the days, I think, when you could kind of pull somebody over, uh, be able to spend a few times with somebody randomly. Uh, folks, are for not, they're not doing that as much as they were. So you're, you're, you're sending out tweets, you're photographing uh, billionaires without pants, um, and you do a scene-setting piece. Um, just as a, just a working journalist, sort of, do you, is there an anxiety about, like, what, what, what should I be doing here? What's the best? Besides talking to Peter Kafka and his audience, what should I be there doing with my time? There you go. I feel much less anxiety than those colleagues of mine who are here from the business TV networks, mm -hmm. or there's uh, a reporter here from The Information. There's somebody, or two people from from the New York Post, someone from Variety. Um, I think they have a they, they have demands that I don't have. I mean, I think that working for NPR, there is some sort of general interest in what's going on here, general interest in deal making. That's what I'm trying to to get a sense of. And then, um, yeah, I'm using it uh, as effectively as I can just to meet with people yeah. on the sidelines, uh, gather string, gather tape, with the hope that I can do something with that when I get back. And, you know, you look at the guest list for this conference, you look who's here, you get a sense of what the agenda is, and you can kind of piece together what it is folks here are talking about or being talked to about. And so there is a bit of, uh, there are a few guests who are in cryptocurrency, there's mm -hmm. a strong presence of gaming CEOs, there's always a weird national security bent at this conference. So there's the former director of the CIA, or tenant who's at 
Allen & Co. Uh, I think there's speculation that Bill Burns, the current head of the CIA, is going to be here. Um, David Petraeus showed up yesterday. General David Petraeus showed up. So, um, yeah, you, you piece together sort of what folks might be talking about. And then, again, as you as you grab people or try to get people on the sidelines, you you get what you can from them about what, what they're discussing and who's here. A big part of Sun Valley, that from, from my understanding, is being invited to Sun Valley and showing up at Sun Valley. And so the fact that you are there and that David photographs you and tweets about you is is kind of at least half the point. In theory, you're supposed to be discussing business. You're supposed to be doing deals. There's an anecdote for uh, the reporter in the Times a couple of years ago about Mark Zuckerberg trying to, to break bread with Tim Cook and Tim Cook basically, you know, giving him the hand and saying, you know, you should shut down Facebook. Do you have any sense of sort of who is looking to talk to someone or you just have to purely speculate because you're just watching the vests? Kind of purely speculate, just watching the vests. And, you know, the big names aren't here yet or we haven't spotted them. So um, no one has seen Tim Cook yet as of when I'm talking to you uh, on, on Wednesday afternoon. Nobody has seen Jeff Bezos, who is rumored to be coming here with Andy Jassy. Neither of them have been spotted. Um, I saw Dara Koshrashahi of Uber driving himself. There's some news, driving himself mm-hmm. <laughs> in a rental car the, this morning with, with his wife. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just speculation. You, you bring up that, that moment of that conversation between Zuckerberg at Cook, and I can't confirm that that happened. But I remember a few years back in, in more halcyon days, um, getting into the inn on site and seeing Mark Zuckerberg talking with Bill Gates over a drink uh, in the evening. Um, so yeah, you, you, you look for elements of people hanging out. I will say there's a lot of pairing up uh, of people within the same company. Like, I don't think that I've seen, that's not true. I've, I've seen Reed and Ted from Netflix together most of the time, but there was one time where Reed Hoffman and Reed Hastings were the two outside the coffee shop, the two reads, the two reads spelled differently, um, each having a San Pellegrino like outside the, the coffee shop. But um, yeah, I haven't seen a whole lot of, of mixing and mingling yet that would lead me to think of, of anything coming about. If I was sent to Sun Valley and I had to write a scene piece, I guess the thing I would say is it's kind of interesting that all the billionaires are willing to be seen and be seen just repeating the word scene, um, in public at a time when if you read what my colleagues write, there's more scrutiny and distrust of billionaires and the tech guys have gone from plucky underdogs to people we now are resentful about. And you might think they might think twice about showing up at a plutocratic retreat full of other gazillionaires. Um, but I guess no one's wearing sackcloth here and everyone's sort of happy to come. No one's wearing sackcloth. It's it's all Patagonia, um, which is standard issue from, from Allen & Co. But um, I, I will say the level of security around this place is more extreme than I've seen uh, in the past. And again, what we're being told is that's because a lot of stuff is happening outside. But there was kind of a, a funny moment yesterday at the end of arrivals when three teenage kids biked up um, to, to the lodge with handmade signs. Two of them were wearing the signs on their chests. The other had a stack of them. Uh, and there was some, something in fact, like, help us find Jeff Bezos. So there's been, <laughs> I guess you can call it some sort it, of... Was that a protest or do they want to get I on the spaceship like, I felt with like them. it was kind of a protest, but I'll, I bring it up just to say, like, they were dispatched really quickly. Um, yeah. There are security guards everywhere. So I will say that there is a level of safety here or comfort, uh, safety and comfort that these that these billionaires have here. And, um, you know, you brought up something a moment ago I'll come back to, which is it's, it's a really funny thing to cover because I think the participants and I think the bank, which is this very notoriously private bank, are happy to have us here because, yeah, Bloomberg and CNBC and Fox Business are broadcasting from here and people are writing stories about what's going on. At the same time, we're held at this arm's length. But, um, you know, well, there, there are billionaires and executives who show up here who aren't out in public uh, 
many other times in the year. And so I, I mentioned my colleagues in, in print and TV. It's the still photographers who are working like crazy just to capture the photographs or right. a photograph of, of some of these more reclusive um, plutocrats out and about. When you see the iconic Jeff Bezos walking out with the vest and his guns out, that that is a Sun Valley photo. Um, yes, yes. So that, that is the contribution for the decade. Um, the, and the other big story is who isn't there? Rupert Murdoch is not any other big notable no-shows? Rupert Murdoch is the biggest one. And I guess we'll see, um, you know, if, if Jeff Bezos shows up. I know he has other things that he's worried about, namely his his space flight coming up here in, in a few days. Um, I reached out ahead of time to a bunch of executives who live overseas. Um, so a, a few folks who live in Europe aren't coming. Um, uh, I, I reached out to an executive from kind of the Amazon equivalent in Argentina who's come in years past. He's not coming this year as well. I think that travel is still an issue despite the fact that yeah. um, almost everybody travels by private. I spoke to the manager of the airport here just a small airport um, before the conference. And he said on the first day alone, they were expecting 90 private jets to, to land. And I said, where are you, you going to park those? And he goes, everywhere we can, <laughs> you know, wherever we can find a spot for them. So, so if you're uh, into Patagonia vests, uh, spotting private planes, seeing the Uber CEO drive themselves, this is the event for you. David Gurry, you, you look pretty rested and, and relaxed. So You know, it's I, I will say there are worse places to be. And even though it can get humiliating to you know, yell at Sherry Redstone, please tell us something over and over again. <laughs> um, we are here in the mountains and the setting is beautiful. And I think there's a reason why it is an, an, an attractive magnet for all these folks to come year after year. Go do your job and thank you for helping me do my job. Thanks, David. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Thanks again to David for calling in from Idaho. That is always funny to say. In a minute, we're going to hear from Kevin Delaney from Charter. But first, a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Mercury. Financial operations are needlessly complex. With Mercury, you can simplify them with banking and software that power your critical financial workflows, all within the one thing every business needs, a bank account. And with new bill pay and accounting integrations, you can pay bills faster, stay in control of company spend, and speed up reconciliation. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Mercury, the art of simplified finances. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that is me. And if I sound particularly old and nostalgic today, it's because I'm recording this from my old bedroom in suburban Minneapolis. And who better to have that conversation with? There's no parallel at all, actually. Uh, Kevin Delaney. Welcome, Kevin. Hello. It's nice to trip back to the 1980s with you. There's some wood paneling that you can see here. Uh, Kevin Delaney is a longtime Wall Street Journal reporter and editor, went on to co-found Quartz. We talked to his former co-founder, Zach Seward, and um, now has launched a new business called Charter. I want to talk to you about building that business, Kevin, but I want to start just talking about the same thing that everyone talks about when they have a conversation these days, at least in my my social settings, which is when are we going back to work and what is work going to look like? And the reason I'm asking you this as well is because this is what you guys are consumed with at Charter, at least for the near term. So I know that every, every, every workplace is different, everyone's different, but what's the general sweep of what back to work looks like this year? Yeah, so this is this is my obsession. And so I'll tell you what I've found out from talking to different businesses and actually some of the academics who are advising people and have done research on this. And basically what it looks like, and let's we can focus on the basically office-based knowledge workers who are working remotely right now, is it looks like about 70% of the companies, as best we can tell, are going to have what's called a hybrid configuration. And this basically means that you split your time between working remotely and working in the office. And the general 
consensus seems to be that people will be in the office two or three days a week, depending on their company. So there are lots of companies that have different, you know, they're going work from anywhere, remote first, lots of different configurations. But for the majority of people who have been working remotely for the last roughly year, year and a half, they're going to go back in a hybrid configuration. And people are starting to go back now. Uh, but Labor Day is kind of the, the moment where, and by the end of the year, we should have the majority of workers back in offices at least part of the time. So the person who's listening to this podcast is probably a knowledge worker. And so they're probably going back to work in some hybrid fashion this fall, if that's the shortest way of putting it. Exactly. Yeah. So having asked you that, my follow-up is, I stopped kind of reading most of the back-to-work articles I've seen over the last year and a half for future work. I dip into the, your stuff, and I find it very interesting. Um, but I keep thinking, boy, I don't think that anything anyone says today is going to be that relevant in six months or nine months. Um, you know, 12 months ago, the idea that we were all going to be mostly vaccinated seemed like a pipe dream. Yeah. A few months ago, we were all still having to wear masks, and that is pretty much gone now. I'm, I'm recording this in Minnesota where no one wears masks at all. It's it's really yeah. startling coming from New York. Um, and, you know, Vox media my employer put out their back to work plan and it's hybrid it's a hybrid first i think um and calls for us you know going back to work if we want to in the fall it also says as of you know two weeks ago that we'll all have to wear masks when we're in the office i assume that's not going to be the case and i assume there's a lot of sort of making it up on the fly so how which is a long-winded way of saying how flexible slash improvisational versus set in stone do you think these plans are I mean, the ideal thing is that they are pretty experimental and people will actually change them over time. There's a London Business School professor, Linda Gratton, who talks about how business practices were frozen before the pandemic unfroze them. We're in a kind of slushy moment and at some point they'll freeze again. She's talking about the pandemic related stuff, but actually business practices more broadly, which is kind of what I'm, I'm most interested in. And, you know, to your point, I think what people are doing is making their best guess about how things should be configured when they go back. But the ideal thing that Linda and Nick Bloom at Stanford and all the researchers say is companies need to actually have some flexibility and see what happens when they get back in there. And part of it is that we know that there are drawbacks to hybrid and flexible work. And among the big, you know, the big issues with them is this thing called proximity bias, which you probably heard about, which is basically like if you see it's a human Thing, we can't help it. But if we see someone, if they're in proximity to us, we're more likely to think they're amazing. And so one of the concerns about hybrid is if you wind up having people who are in the office together at the same time, and then other members of their team that are, that are never there or don't overlap quite as much, over time, the people who overlap are going to, with their boss, are going to get promotions and they're going to get, and their particular groups of people who are susceptible to that. And so, you know, what, every company should be doing is like, okay, we have a plan. We need to give you clarity right now. We're going to go back in September and do things this way. But we're also going to listen to you and, and try and find the sweet spot for our practices. And we have to pay really, really close attention to all the data around retention, promotion, and make sure that there aren't groups of people who are actually left behind in the process of adapting to this new way of working. Because we know going into this that, that researchers have told us there are actually some specific perils to this uh, that we have to be attentive to. Yeah, so I mean, ob obviously, a researcher and academics and, and even people who aren't sort of thinking about this purely intellectually, like there's what we want to happen and there's what's going to happen. 
Um, and I think if you if you're not spending a lot of time thinking about this, some of this stuff will will come as a shock to you when you come back to school. Uh, come back to school. Come back to work <laughs> in the fall. Um, here's here's a good example. You you spelled it out in one of your newsletters recently. Uh, the Americans in Europe approach to meetings. Can you explain what that is? I think it's going to yeah. shock people when they see. Yeah, it. basically, this is a phrase that Nick Bloom at Stanford uses, and what he says he he's an Englishman, and he says you know he goes to uh, he goes to meetings in Germany. He doesn't speak German. And all of the Germans speak English because he's in he's an English speaker there. And so basically the analog for returning to work in a hybrid setting is that you have you, you could have four people in a meeting who are in person in the office and then you have one person who's remote. And in fact, the best practice is rather than have an unequal playing field where you have the one person who is remote who's at a disadvantage in ter- terms of the dynamics of the conversation everyone goes back to their desks or, or different parts of the office and gets on their laptop and logs in as if they were remote. And so instead of everyone speaking English when they're actually mostly German, it's instead of everyone who is in person, actually being in person for a meeting, they all go remote. Um, and there's some interesting technology in Microsoft. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in the office. Yeah. There's a meeting instead of going to the conference room and meeting people there and someone is on a screen on a Zoom or multiple people are on a screen on a Zoom. We don't go to the conference room. We all just Zoom together while some of us are in the same space and some of us are remote. Exactly. And a lot of offices are building more, uh, you know, a lot of us had phone booths before where you could go and make a phone call so that you didn't have to take up a whole conference room. A lot of offices are either installing or anticipate installing the equivalent of phone booths where you can do what you just described. So the idea of that, right, is is we want to make it so the person who's working from home, wherever they are, wherever they are remotely, isn't disadvantaged, isn't cut out of the before or after meeting or even during meeting con- side conversations. Um, so you're basically sort of uh, you've got equality because by taking something away from the other folks. Um, yeah. my kid has gone to school, uh, last spring, uh, the same way they would do zoom in a room in part so that the kids at home were getting the same education. Um, and that was done in a pandemic when, you know, with really limited resources. This seems like this is not going to last more than a week or two in most offices, because even if you are resentfully zooming from your cube, instead of seeing someone in, in, in the office, you're going to go talk to that person in the office. That's why you're there. And it seems like that is going to butt up against reality really quickly. So how do, you, how do you deal with that stuff? Yeah, I think the hardest things for people to adapt to is going to be hybrid meetings for precisely for the reason that you said. You're in, a, you're in a room. You're used to sitting around with people. There's a, definitely a connection that you have that someone who is dialing in uh, is doesn't actually have that connection. So I actually think that that is one of the big considerations that people are, you know, one of the things people are going to have to run into. There, in theory, there's like technology that can help you with that. And there's some companies that are that are making it, they're adding cameras there instead of having a screen at the far end of the room where everyone's at a long conference table, you're actually kind of the conference room table shoved up against a big screen. So people are, are just feel more present and actually part of the conversation. That's an area of experimentation. But I, I would argue that's one of the things if I were, you know, leading a big group of people that I would focus on a lot, like how to get the hybrid meeting right. But the reason you're doing that is because you're a good 
person and also a good manager and you want to make sure that people who are working from home aren't cut out, uh, have the ability to advance their careers. Um, that's out of self-interest, right? Because you want to keep those people. But it seems like there's some stuff where, you know, whatever the intent is, it's going to bump up against a reality. Either you're going to figure out that to advance your career, you work, it's the kind of office where you need to be around and there's decisions being made and, and, and you, if you're not there, you're not there. Or uh, I was talking with somebody at, at Facebook recently and they said their back to work plan basically is whatever Google's is because they are competing for talent. And so they just, whatever they say, they just have to offer the same terms as, as their competitive set. Um, and then within that, it's different too, right? So if, if you're a certain kind of worker at Facebook, you have one set of rules. And if you're another, if you're an engineer, you do whatever you want because the engineers are king. And also because the engineers seem perfectly happy and, and capable of working from home. So it seems like a lot of this is going to, which I guess is the point of your publication, right? Is going to be sort of set over time and, and sort of theory is going to bump up against the real world. I think these issues are going to play out over maybe 12 to 18 months. We're going to get in. It's going to be messy as you're describing. And we're going to have to figure out what is what, what actually does work in practice. So the, these issues are not going away. They're in, in what you just said, there are two important issues that are contained. The first one is that it's really important how leaders of organizations approach this. So you have Adam D'Angelo, who's the CEO of Quora, for example, and he's told his staff they were, they were going to remote first, but he said he's not going to go into their headquarters more than one time a month. And he's doing this specifically to avoid one of the things that you said, which is by being there every day, you naturally other people would be there because they would feel like proximity to the CEO of the company would be something that would be desirable over time. The second thing is that there is, I think, over the next 12 months, we're going to see, and we're seeing the beginning of this already, actually a, a massive wave of people considering changing jobs. In April, we have the data, U.S. Uh, data in April, there are 4 million people who quit their jobs. This is the biggest number in, in recorded U.S. history for the number of people who quit jobs. And, and the numbers seemed high, but actually we're having survey after survey that's actually confirming this, roughly 40% of people say that they're open to changing jobs within the next 12 months. If you actually look at managers and leaders of organizations, the number is actually higher. A majority of managers and leaders surveyed anticipate considering other jobs over the next 12 months. That number is really, really high. And as to your point about Facebook and Google, companies are going to, on top of all this other complexity, are going to be competing for talent and needing to like figure out their practices so that they can be a place where people want to work. And that, that job quitting number, right, this gets conflated with the, you know, people saying we can't hire enough restaurant workers because they're, they're making so much money on employment, they'd rather just sit back. Um, that's not that four million. That, those are people who have jobs and are deciding not to go. Correct. To those are people who, who resigned from jobs. And we're just guessing, right, about why that's happening. But presumably those are people who are, you know, gone through what we all went through over the last year and a half and said, I want to, I have the ability to make changes in my life and I want to do that, or at least I think I want to do that. Yeah. They feel confident about the market for their labor and that they actually could find something better than their current job, whether they're shifting to it immediately or they're planning to spend the summer recovering mentally and emotionally and otherwise taking a real vacation and then going back in the job market. But it's a sign of incredible confidence among 
workers that they would leave jobs in the in those numbers. So let's talk about how you became an, an expert in this. Like I said, you were a longtime journal editor. You started Quartz. Um, you left that. Um, I think you were doing some work for The Times. You did some work for Jessica Lesson at The Information. And then you were putting together this newsletter, which was then called Reset, which was all about sort of all of these questions, all of these like manager questions slash cocktail party questions before we had cocktail parties. Was the plan always that you would start with a newsletter and then build a company around it? Yeah, so I've long been interested in these issues. You know, I'm a, as a lot of people who wind up leading teams in, in news organizations, I'm a self-taught manager. So I've always been really interested in how to, how to lead a team successfully. And the rub that I always found was that the advice that people recommended was, you know, Peter Drucker and Andy Grove and like all these sort of icons of management practices from 30, 40, 50 years ago. And there was a, you reach a point where when you're leading a team, you actually don't feel that they're, advice is coherent with where you know the world is going. They, these guys were not thinking about climate change. They really weren't thinking about gender and racial equity and diversity with anywhere near the importance that it actually needs. They weren't really thinking about automation in the same way that we are and what, how that impacts the future of work. They definitely were not thinking about reinventing capitalism, you know, in a way that, that sort of fair pay and, and some of these other issues uh, surface today. And so I felt the real limits of what was out there. And when I left Quartz, uh, you know, it's a year and a half, two years ago, I thought maybe I'll write a book, which would be the book that I would actually give to someone. I wound up working at the Times in a project on economic inequality, and, but keeping this sort of thinking and the pandemic, you know, intensified a lot of these questions about work and, and how you lead a team. And so I wound up starting this email newsletter last year, feeling that there was a real need there. And the experience of writing the email newsletter and how it played out just confirmed that there actually was a really big opportunity. So the email newsletter started maybe as a, a starting point to explore this area. And as you know, at Quartz, we were in, in the head, you know, in the lead peloton, if you want, of the current wave of modern email newsletters. And so I had a lot of experience and conviction around an email newsletter. It felt like a good place to start to build a direct connection with people, to actually test topics and ideas and approaches and see what people actually clicked on and what they read. And you can actually ask people when you're, you have this relatively intimate relationship with them, they, you're peering their inbox, you can survey them, you can ask them you know, what they're interested in, you can actually just see the data. And it all confirmed for me that there is a really big need. And ultimately, you know, if you're thinking about building a media business, there is a big business opportunity here to actually dimensionalize beyond an email newsletter. I don't think I've heard dimensionalize before. That's good. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because we spend a lot of time talking about newsletters on this podcast, obviously Substack and Review and the Facebook thing that just launched, uh, Bulletin. Um, and those are all, we think of the, generally the way we think about those is those are escape hatches for, for journalists. Um, their new career paths away from their established uh, employer, or maybe it's a, way, a side business for them. So when did it click in for you that, oh, this would be... I'm going to build a business starting with the newsletter. How long did that take for you to, to sort of click? I mean, it was pretty early, to be honest. Yeah. Like I went in thinking, I want to build a business and actually did a bunch of user testing and prototyping last fall around what that business could be. And in parallel was building the newsletter audience. And it just confirmed that there was a, a real opportunity here. So I went in 
with the thesis that there was really something and started laying the groundwork in parallel with uh, with the email newsletter. And I guess by the end of the year, it was really clear to me that there, you know, I was going to I was going to go go forward with this. This was a big opportunity. So spell out what the business looks like now. So there's the free newsletter that I'm I have been getting. I still get. And still Thank read. you. And and you launched, I think, formally a couple of weeks ago. And so what, what are the other components of the of the business? Yeah. So basically, there's the free newsletter, which is a sponsorship model. And we have today about 20,000 subscribers to that and have a target of around 50,000 by the fourth quarter of this year. And we're getting good organic growth and doing a little marketing and, and the curve is looking pretty good uh, to get there. We have a business which is not yet out in the world, but it's a subscription business. So if you can imagine the free content going deeper on that to a bit more premium content, mm-hmm. I would, you know, to give you a sense of how we're thinking about that, it's a it's a subscription that we think will should be premium and expensable. It's something that will help people doing their job. It's not a general news subscription. And so that, you know, that's an interesting business opportunity. Yeah. What do you think that's going to cost me? A hundred dollars a year, a thousand dollars a year, me or my employer? You know, we're, we're still figuring that out. I think the starting point is probably to have multiple tiers and you can look Mm -hmm. at someone like Jessica Lesson at the information, who I think has been really smart about having a premium subscription. You can actually, she has two, two sort of prosumer tiers. And then I think it, it goes up beyond that. So I think that model is really good. It's worked really well for her. And I feel like that's that's a good template for us to follow. So that's the second part of the business is the subscription content. And we feel like we have a lot of opportunity to provide content there that is not available elsewhere. And part of it is actually just being like very bridging the research to practice. So like giving people tools, best practices for navigating stuff in a way that is really valuable and useful to them. And then the third part of the business is a services part of the business. And the first manifestation of this is something that we've just released. We co-created an online training course in hybrid management with a B2B online training company called Nomadic. And so we did this winter, we did some surveys of of return to workplace decision makers. So people who were part of the teams that were deciding how they're going to go back to work. And their number one concern, interestingly, was adequate support and training for managers above all the things like, you know, are people going to affect each other and and how we're going to deal with facilities and, and everything else. And so that really reinforced for us that there was a need and an opportunity to actually train managers. And so with Nomadic, we co-created this class. It's an online class. Your employer, anyone can sign up for it, but generally they have big employers who have contracts for their employees to access these classes. It takes about five or six hours. It's an interactive class. There are lots of videos and and case studies and things. And by the end of it, you have more traction in, in how to think about managing your team. So that is the third business. We think that there's more there, which is this kind of B2B. It's a services business that's B2B um, kind of related. We have done a bunch of events. We just did this big return to workplace summit. And uh, we also started a Slack community for people who are in the thick of making the decisions and, and about these things and navigate them. So sort of pulling them together as a, as a community as well. And you're, you're bootstrapping this? It's you and a couple other folks? Yeah. yeah. Uh, eventually, is this a venture-backed business or is this something where you don't want venture money? Have you thought that through? 
Yeah, it's a it's an ongoing conversation, and I think it depends a lot on the the speed at which different parts of the business take off. I think that we could imagine taking investment, uh, but probably would start with a kind of friends and family convertible debt round that we think we could actually get pretty far on. It's a you know the, the operating the business so far actually gives me a lot of conviction about the the business model and the revenue potential there. We've already had hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue prior to the launch of this. And so I feel like, particularly with the three different lanes of business that we've been talking about, that there is a real business model. And, and my preference would be not to prematurely seek investment and not to prematurely seek venture investment because we know what that does to the the focus of management and and the the latitude you have for creativity and um, and the the financial demands on the business and I'd rather not rush into that. Just to tease that out, that that taking venture money puts you on a track where you need to be doing really significant growth and 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 because that's the payoff, right? Is you know, the the investor wants a ten x return and and so which isn't necessarily bad, but it may but it may not be where you want to go and it may force you to make decisions you would not make otherwise. I think there's a moment in a business where you want to do that, but I don't think that moment ideally is this moment uh, right now. The other thing is that. We think of ourselves as a media and services business for the reasons that you know I described, and I think we go, we do, we're differentiated from some other media companies' efforts in this area because we're actually training managers, basically, which I think very few other media organizations are going at it with that sort of focus and intensity, at least. But um, I think that these businesses are good businesses, but they're not necessarily you know, a platform for ride sharing or photo sharing or, or whatever else, which is what venture capital is optimized for funding. And so I want to build a good business and have a lot of conviction around the path to profitability and growth for this business. But I don't want to sort of seatbelt myself into like buckle into the VC mode of operating, especially this early on. That all makes sense. It's great. You've got you've got all many of the the 2021 new business buzzwords, right? You got email, distance learning, uh, uh, retraining managers. Um, it sounds like I'm being facetious, but it, it seems very smart and savvy. What is the pitch to someone like me who has managed in the past and been mediocre at it and is hoping to not manage again? Um, I'm going to be managed, I guess, for the rest of my, my career. Yeah. So I'm paying attention because I'm paying attention to you. Is there a reason for, for the average non-manager to read what you're putting out? I think so, because, you know, you're not, if you're a worker who is not necessarily managing people, you are presumably part of a team and you are presumably part of shaping how your team operates and what best practices are. And you are presumably someone who's interested in your workplace being one that operates more efficiently, where people can thrive, where, you know, just kind of a better place to work. And what we're providing are the tools for doing that, which in theory are, a lot of them are the responsibility of the manager, but actually a lot of them are ones that individuals can can operate. So one of the sections of the newsletter, which you've probably seen, is how to manage yourself, uh, your team and organizations or yourself and others. 
And part of it is actually just managing yourself. Um, and so I think a large portion of what we're doing is relevant in that context. You, you flicked at this uh, a little bit ago when you're talking about sort of the concerns a manager has today. You mentioned equity and, and environmentally being environmentally responsible and, and remaking capitalism. And I think um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, I'll probably nod at their heads. And I think, you know, if you work in places that, that we work at, especially a place like Vox Media, those all make sense. But those also seem, you know, like political statements or could be viewed as political statements, either, you know, uh, honestly or cynically, depending on who the audience is. And you put out a charter for a charter um, and it spells some of this stuff out. Uh, you talk about diversity and inclusivity, positive for earth and community. Do you think about the idea that there are going to be some employers or, or managers who say that's not what we're all about? That's Brooklyn and Berkeley fantasy talk. And that's not relevant to what we do here at our widget company. Yeah, you know, we've seen over the last year that there are companies that are may have made very clear that they're not willing to engage in some of those issues. And the you know the headline examples are companies like Basecamp and Coinbase, both of whom have said societal engagement is not part of our activity. And if you want to talk about uh, racial injustice, do it in your own time, but don't do it on our company Slack and things like that. So there are yes, the answer is yes. Of course, there are companies. But I actually do think that not engaging with these things is, in a way, a bigger statement than engaging with them. It's a choice that you actually, we know that there's racial injustice in the workplace and the data, you know, the data overwhelmingly support the fact that there's a, just on a very basic level, there's a wage gap between people of color and white people, a wage gap between men and women. These issues are not resolved in any way. And if you refuse to engage with some of the values, as you noted, that, you know, that we've spelled out in this charter for a new way of doing business that we hope that, that companies actually adopt on their own or find ways to, to help us build from, uh, if you don't engage with these things, you're actually committing to a way of doing things that is probably unfair on some level and in terms of the distribution of opportunity and compensation and other things, uh, my so guess, let me let me play devil's yeah. advocate and say uh, my job is to maximize return at, here at the widget company, um, and even if I believe all these things are important, I am not being rewarded for them, and um, I'm going to nod and I'm going to say diversity, equity, uh, inclusivity. What's the what's the I part in DEI? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I will I will learn how to say that uh, yeah. without pausing and screwing it up like I just did, and I'll do all those things. But when push comes to shove, I got to make this many more widgets, and then next quarter I got to add ten percent to that number. Yeah, um, and I'm just gonna just shuffle along here and do whatever I need to do to get through this next part of of American history. Well, so I think about that on two levels. On the first level, it's probably bad for your business to do that, and there have been researchers who have studied companies that either pay people a living wage or don't. And it turns out over time, the companies that actually pay a living wage, for example, in this, you know, just using that as one, one of the vectors, they're less likely to have the expense of turnover of employees. Their customers are more likely to be happy. They're actually just better businesses. The same is true of diversity. There's been lots of research that shows that diverse teams are actually better teams. And add on to that the layer of the and talent crisis, I think a lot of organizations are going to face where employees actually do have choices about where they want to work. And I'm an employee 
say I'm an employee of color and I'm working for someone like you, Mr. Boss, who told me that there's no room for talking about racial justice in the workplace, then I could go across town and work for a place where they are willing to actually engage with the structural issues in the workplace. Why would I continue to work for you? And, and good luck finding, you know, finding other people. So I think there's that level. I think that there's a another there's, level. So there's also talking- a theoretical white person or someone else who says, I don't want to work at a workplace where we all have to, um, there's a reading list for, for, you know, Black History Month or whatever else. And I feel uh, it, it offends me somehow. Uh, or again, like, I'm, I'm whatever, I don't really care about it, but this is not what motivates me. Yeah. Um, again, I think that person is usually a straw man, but, but in theory, they exist. Yeah, I mean, if you want to have a company, uh, and I think this is one of the things that it'll be interesting to see with Coinbase and Basecamp. What do their companies look like a year from now in terms of the demographic makeup, in terms of their engagement with with the pay equity and, and diversity and all these issues? And if you want to work for a company of white men who only slack about cryptocurrency, that option may be open to you. But is that the sort of company that most that is that a healthy company over time? Probably not. Is that a company that's going to thrive over time? Probably not. Uh, and so, you know, that's a that's a choice. I would argue one other on one other level, which is that it just, you know, we we have a society in which so many of the systems are broken, and that includes the workplace. And we know that even outside of the workplace, people have trouble relating to each other. We have trouble like bridging political and other. Um, divides. And one thing that's super interesting, if you're if you care about the state of civil society, is that there's been research that's so, shown that how people are treated in the workplace actually spills over into how they engage in their community and then they engage as civic participants. And so if I feel like I'm respected in the workplace, I have a voice in how my organization and my team is managed, I feel like I'm thriving. A much more likely the research shows to be a, the sort of citizen who we would want, you know, to have in our democracy. And so that's a that's a kind of meta project. But if you care about those things, it's another reason to think about this sort of values that we're talking about in the charter. When you're when you're thinking about these companies that are embracing these ideas and figuring out how to retain employees and navigating all of this, who's your north star? Who are the companies you think are? demonstrating this right now in the real world? Yeah, it's a good question. Like a lot of the companies that people point to that are in the press, you know, through the business roundtable. So a lot of the like public discussion around this is dominated by big CEOs. You know, Jamie Dimon or um, Walmart CEO are the very involved with the business roundtable, which has made all these public pronouncements about stakeholder capitalism and racial justice. And, you know, unfortunately, the research has shown that those companies, when the pandemic hit, were the first ones to lay people off, or at the very least, like weren't better than anyone who didn't sign those those uh, business roundtable PR releases. This, is, this goes back to my push comes to shove cynicism, right? Like we say these things, we say we embrace this, and then the first sign of, of, of reality, we go, all right, that's that we're gonna re- re- regretfully we have to ignore this. I'm personally, I'm pretty skeptical of a lot of the public pronouncements and the, the you know, you read the, the like most innovative companies and most progressive workplaces and best place to work. And, and you look at those lists, it's the companies that have the largest market cap just shuffled around from one list to the next. So is Walmart or Microsoft or Amazon really the most innovative and the most productive and 
or you know Google or a lot of these companies. I actually don't. And so I think a lot of the work that we're doing is actually digging deeper and engaging with companies that probably aren't on your radar for a lot of the stuff. So one, you know, one example, I just interviewed um, a woman who has, who's a former management consultant who has her own company out West called Artemis Consulting. It's been an all remote company and uh, she's figured out how to onboard people in a really interesting way. She's actually tapped into a lot of returnship. So people who might've been mothers who took some time off to look after their kids and are coming back into the workplace like really kind of interesting practices. And she's a management consultant. So the way that she talks about it, the way that she structures it, the way that she thinks about it would actually be ways that people who run a bank or a big tech company would feel comfortable with and would kind of understand um, the way. That she, so, so that's one example of the sort of places that we're looking for innovation that, that don't otherwise really get headlines. Do you think that the, the the examples you're finding are not the big co's of the world are because the standard answer, which is, um, you know, you're going to find innovation from smaller companies, from, from you know, startups that don't have sort of built-in um, ecosystems. I'm just making up words now, but, you know, aren't hidebound. <laughs> um, yeah. Or is it because when you get to a certain size, and I guess I keep coming back to this cynicism, skepticism argument, that once you get to a certain size, that that a lot of the things you started out thinking and were innovative don't work at, at scale. And, you know, there's a lot of, for instance, a lot of companies, I think, at least in the media world, who are ruining putting Slack in because it's Slack, you know, has some advantages, but it also allows all your employees to yell at each other and fight with each other. And, and if they had it to do it over, they wouldn't have, uh, you know, open slacks. Um, so, I mean, I, presumably you're going to tell me that all of these big companies can change and that's part of your pitch, but I'm wondering if this is something where it really is fundamentally limited to a, a certain size of company. I, I don't think it's limited to a certain size. And, uh, and so, you know, two examples that stand out for specific initiative, not necessarily across all their activities. One is Costco, which has actually been a leader in fair pay over the years. And they're, they're the case study. And unfortunately, they're kind of been an isolated case study until now, but they've always paid people at very least closer to a living wage. And what they've seen, you know, the academics have studied and they're, there's less turnover in their workers and their customers are more loyal and all these, they've actually had all these benefits for it. So if you're looking at basic issues like living wage, you know, that's an example of it. I wrote a little bit about PayPal and they've done this, came to this interesting realization that they actually had a lot of workers who were living paycheck to paycheck and actually kind of running out of cash between. And it was really surprising to them because they think of themselves as this progressive tech company. And so they launched this financial wellness initiative and they increased people's pay and they gave them uh, different, uh, they actually, among the things that they did is that they, um, gave people, uh, paying people better meant that they improved the um, health benefits and retirement savings and just kind of basic stuff. And um, that actually has made a massive difference for their workforce. So those would be two examples of relatively big companies that actually are doing stuff that other companies should be looking at. But the other answer to your question is that we're in this moment where companies' practices are unfrozen. And so there is a greater opportunity than there was 12 months ago or 24 months ago or 36 months ago to actually get a big company to consider some of these practices because everything has been kind of thrown up in the air. And their playbook for the last 40 years is not as relevant as it might have seemed three years ago. And so when you're doing this, why don't you actually 
adopt some of these practices that are both more fair, but also better suited to the way people work today and not the workplace of, you know, our youth. Crisis is opportunity. I said this would be short and look, we're still talking because this is so interesting. Last business starting question, personal for you. So you, this is the second time you've, you started a, a business, a media business. The first time was as a, you know, you were own, owned basically by the folks who owned The Atlantic. Now you're doing it on your own. Beyond the fact that capital's different, right? Um, and you're bootstrapping this and you're talking to me out of your home, I think, in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. What's the biggest thing that you want to sort of do differently this time around? It's really interesting. I've been thinking about this because the, the context for starting is actually surprisingly different. So we started Quartz in 2012. In 2012, we had five engineers at least. And today we have one engineer. We had a team. We couldn't launch with fewer than 25 people. We have eight people now working, some employees, some on contract. Um, and it's actually just in terms of the platforms for starting businesses, both technology and financial, you have things like Stripe, which wasn't really an option then, and lots of other systems. It's actually, I mean, it's, it's a total cliche, Peter, like I don't, I don't feel like particularly smart saying this, but it's actually easier to build a, a business without all of the overhead. And what we've done over the last nine months is kind of feel out the market and be in contact with people and develop conviction around the path. I really like that. I like not having to lock in your plan for the next two years right now, but rather actually see, do as we're doing. We had, we had a pretty big event recently. We're doing this training program. We have a free newsletter. We're going to launch subscription content. And, and the difference now is you can actually do this pretty nimbly and kind of, um, as the opportunity crystallizes, really, um, really go for it. I had a great experience at Quartz. It was an incredible opportunity. And a lot of what I learned there, I actually take with me. You know, among the things was, that was really pretty remarkable is early on, David Bradley, who owned the Atlantic and brought me in to start Quartz said something to the effect of when, when you're, you should above all aim to do something that is bold and creative. And that was really Really, you know, I was coming from the Wall Street Journal. That was a really powerful thing for David to um, to say, and actually was a, a really important when we we're launching Quartz. We launched without a homepage. We launched without standard ads. We launched. We designed for mobile first. We did. We went all in on an email newsletter when people actually weren't uh, didn't have the same amount of conviction around the opportunity for that as a a product. And I guess the thing that I do hope that I do similarly is actually retain that spirit. Just if you come, if you're at a crossroads and when in doubt, and they're both viable options, choose the path that's more bold and creative and probably at moments scarier. And that was the story of a lot of the history of courts. And I think um, was incredibly fulfilling to approach things that way and also led to some of the things that I'm proudest of there. Kevin Delaney, great to talk to you. Um, I think we live in the same borough still, so we should as things are opening up, I've been going to events, I've been going to dinners. We should, we should have a drink or a face-to-face thing. I would love to see you in person, Peter, and thanks. Thanks again to Kevin. Thanks again to David Gura from NPR. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani. We edit and produce this show every week. Every week we give you new free content. We never stop. Um, and thanks to you guys for listening to that new free content. Tell me that you like it and give me suggestions. I do read your emails and tweets and texts when you have thoughts and suggestions, so keep them coming. 
This is Recode Media. See you next week. Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com.